0: You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Amen. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, will you go with me to John's Gospel, John chapter 6. That's where we'll be this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, there are stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You should have seen them on your way in. We'd love to give you a Bible. That's our gift to you with no strings attached. You can pick one up now, or you can pick one up on your way out of worship this morning. And if you don't know your way around the Bible that well, you're not terribly familiar with it, we've put all the verses that we're going to be studying on the screen so you can follow along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We stand because we truly believe that these are the words of God. And so we stand out of reverence and eagerness. We're ready to hear whatever it is that he has to say to us this day. So listen carefully to these words. This is Jesus speaking in John chapter 6. Here's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. I was reminded this morning that the pandemic of the last two years has changed us in many ways, hasn't it? It's changed the way we interact with each other. We're still not quite sure how we're supposed to greet someone in terms of what we do or don't do with our hands, right? Like, do you lead with a handshake, a fist pump? Do you just put the hands in the pockets? It's changed us. But some things never change. Some things never change. Like the questions we tend to greet one another with. Those have remained the same. How's your day? How you doing? How you doing? Right? That's probably the most common one. How are you doing? And most people just respond, good. Then you meet occasionally, you know, like the English major, and they always respond, I'm doing well. (laughs) Because technically, technically, well modifies the verb, the glamour of grammar, right? But instinctively, we just say, good. Because most of us would say, you know what, I, I am pretty good. I have a pretty good life. There's a part of us that feels that way, and yet, and yet, on another level, don't we all at times find ourselves longing for something else, something that we think would make life better? Now, why do we feel that way? Because wherever we go and wherever we look, we are assaulted, and I think that's the right word, assaulted by pictures and promises of the good life. Especially this time of year, right? As we move toward Black Friday and Cyber Monday and the Christmas season, we are assaulted by these pictures and these promises of the good life. It's the billboards you see on the road. It's your social media feed. It's the YouTube ads. It's the checkout line at the grocery store. Pictures and promises. Of the good life. This is what you need. Here's what the good life looks like, and here's what you need to attain it for yourself. What exactly is the good life according to our culture? There's a series of essays called Everyday Theology, edited by Kevin Van Hooser and a couple of others. Van Hooser is a professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Brilliant scholar, wicked beard. You should read anything he reads or he writes or edits. And here's what Van Hooser says in the opening chapter of the book. He says, all around us there's a message being told, right? We've talked about this on Sunday mornings. All around us, everywhere you go, everywhere you look, there's a message, a story that's being told. Interestingly, one of the first essays in this book, the writer takes us on a walk through the grocery checkout line at his preferred grocery store. So just picture your preferred grocery store, and if you live in Florida, it's Publix, so you don't have a choice. Think about your preferred grocery store and picture the checkout line, that, that gauntlet gallery through which we must walk, unless you Instacart, and then you're in a separate category, through which we must walk. And here's what the author of that essay does. He looks at the print media and the assortment of other items there in the checkout line. And from the checkout line alone, he concludes there are seven pieces to the good life according to our culture. Seven pieces. Here they are. It all begins with intimacy. Or more specifically, a hyperactive, experimental, open sex life. You can't possibly be fulfilled. You can't possibly have the good life if you're living a celibate life. You can't possibly have the good life if you're committed to just one person for your whole life. It begins with intimacy. Then, of course, how do you have this fulfilling sex life? Well, you have to be beautiful, of course. You have to look a certain way, which ties into the third one, health. You have to have a certain type of physique, certain proportions. And, of course, there's that magic number on the scale that sets the limit of beauty and health. Beauty always weighs less than fill in the blank. Then, fourth, information. To live the good life, you have to have information. Come on, we're modern people. You need information about your sports team and South Sudan. You need information about local elections and the global economy. And not only do you need the information, you need it fast. Fifth, convenience. Whatever you need, you need it quickly, you need it effortlessly. Fast food on-demand viewing, real-time reporting. And of course, sixth, if you have wealth, then you can have all of this. The problem-free life, the good life, it's available if only you have the cash or the credit limit. And the end of all of it, with that hyper-sexual life that beauty, that health, that money, you have all of these things and you can attain the most coveted status of our day, you can be a celebrity. You can be famous. People will want to be you. The good life, according to culture. Now, here's what the companies behind the checkout line and the companies behind the YouTube ads, and the companies behind your social media feed, here's what they will not tell you because they want something from you. And here's what I will tell you because I want something for you. This, all of this, is a mirage. It's a mirage. Get all of these things. Give your life to the pursuit of them and still you will find that you're not fully satisfied. Still you will find that your heart it longs for something else. Something more. The 4th century philosopher Augustine, I quote him often, he devoted his life to the pursuit of many of these things and you know what? He attained them. And still he found it didn't bring him the good life he hoped for. Famously, in his spiritual autobiography, Augustine wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will be restless until they rest in you. See, this is why. This is why all of these things, even if you attain them, they won't fulfill you because you were designed for a relationship with God. You were designed for something more. So get all of these things and still you will feel that something is lacking, something is missing. Your heart, your deepest you, it will feel homeless until you come home to Jesus. Until you come home to Jesus. He is the only one who can provide that for which your heart searches. Today and for the next six weeks... We're going to be looking in the Gospel of John. We have four Gospels in the New Testament. Most of you will know this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the most unique. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sometimes referred to as the synoptic Gospels because they share many of the same conversations, many of the same stories. John, on the other hand, has the highest degree of unique material, including what's called the seven I Am sayings of Jesus. That's what we're going to be studying in this series. But before we look at those, let me give you the purpose of John's gospel. He makes it very clear. At the end of the gospel, John tells us exactly why he wrote this book. This is John, the eyewitness of Jesus, the apprentice, the follower of Jesus. And he has a very clear intention. He makes no bones about it. Here's what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John wants us to see who Jesus is, who He is really, and to be changed, to find that abundant life, that good life, that for which our hearts are searching. John wants us to find it in Jesus. So beginning today and for the next six weeks, we're going to look at these I am sayings of Jesus. Only in John's gospel do we find these. Seven different places in the gospel, Jesus says, I am, and then he fills in the gap with a metaphor. And as we study these metaphors together, we will come to see who Jesus is really. Think of it like this. If Jesus were to host his own personal website... The About Me drop-down menu would be the seven I Am sayings. That's how important these are. So you'll want to listen carefully and you'll want to be here each week. Now today we find the first I Am saying in John chapter 6 in the context of a much longer story. And as the story unfolds, we'll notice three things. First, what Jesus does. Second, who Jesus is. And third, how the people respond. So a very simple outline today. What Jesus does, who Jesus is, and how the people respond. As you listen to the story, put yourself in the story and ask yourself, How will I respond? In light of what Jesus does, in light of who Jesus is, how will I respond? First, here's what Jesus does. Look at how the story begins in John 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. So track with me. Here's how the story begins. Jesus is very popular. People have heard his teaching. They've seen him perform these miraculous signs. Jesus goes away. He goes into the hill country next to the Sea of Galilee. He's sort of escaping for a nice, quiet, uneventful time with his disciples. But the plan is interrupted. He looks from the hillside out into the distance and he sees an enormous crowd walking straight toward him. This is a mega church crowd. Jesus sees them coming and so he turns to one of his closest followers, Philip, and he says, Philip, these people are going to be hungry. How in the world are we going to provide bread for them? Now, John, the narrator of the story, he lets you and I in on a secret little detail here. This was a test. Jesus already knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew exactly how he would provide for the crowd. He tests Philip. He wants to see how Philip will respond. And Philip says, Jesus, if we had 200 denarii, that would not be enough money to buy bread for this crowd. Now, this is the first hint in the story that this was, in fact, a mega-church crowd because 200 denarii at that time in history was more than half a year's salary. So, in essence, in our terms, Philip says, Jesus, five figures would not feed this crowd. We don't have the money. I don't know what we're going to do. And that's when another disciple speaks up. He looks at the crowd. The crowd must be very close now. And in the crowd, he sees a small boy. And the boy has five barley loaves and two fish. And so this disciple says to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, I I don't really know if this is going to help matters, but I see a kid out there, and he's got a Lunchable. (laughs) And the other disciples must have been thinking, First of all, are you you saying that we should just take the kids' Lunchable? And then even if we take the kindergartners' Lunchable, like there's look at the crowd. Is that really going to help? But this is where the story really becomes interesting. Jesus says to the disciples, help everyone find a place to sit and get comfortable. So the disciples do what he says. They start moving around the crowd. They help everyone find a place to sit. At that point, they must have counted because we're told there were 5,000 people there. Now bear in mind, that's just the heads of households. That's how they counted in those days. So if you include the women and the children, upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people in the crowd. Mega church crowd. The disciples help all of them find a seat. Meanwhile, Jesus does take the kindergartner's lunchable. And here's what he does with it. He holds it up, these five Barley loaves, these two fish, these seven measly pieces of food. He holds them up. He prays. And somehow, somehow, the food multiplies. It's amazing. The food multiplies and it becomes enough food to feed the entire crowd and even to feed them second breakfast. And there's leftovers. Now, how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus do this? Is he a magician? No. No, he's the maker. Is he a wizard? No, no, no. He's the Word. See, at the beginning of John's Gospel, the very first verse, John introduces Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus is God. The eternal God, the one who was there and who made all things in the very beginning. This is how he can multiply the food. Here's the way C.S. Lewis says it in his book, Miracles, and I think he's exactly right. He says, the world works the way it does because God made it that way. The world works the way it does because God made it that way. So every year, there's a harvest. Every year, there is a process of Reproduction. Crops grow, animals reproduce. Why? Because that's the way God, the Maker, designed things to work. In John 6, we have the God-man, Jesus, overriding the normal process. He can do so. It's His right to do so. He is the Maker. So in John 6, Jesus takes these normal processes a harvest, reproduction, crops growing, animals reproducing, and He speeds the process along. Jesus gives a whole new meaning to the term fast food. He can do it. Why? Because He's the Maker. Because He's God. Fast forward now to the next day. In the night, Jesus and His disciples leave the hill country and they go across the Sea of Galilee. The crowd, they've all eaten second breakfast, they're stuffed, they camp out in the hill country and they sleep well. But the next morning they wake and they realize that Jesus is gone. So again, they follow him. They find boats, lots of boats, because it's a megachurch crowd. And they go across the Sea of Galilee seeking Jesus. And that brings us to the second part of the story where now the focus shifts away from what Jesus does to who Jesus is. Is And this is where we find that first I am saying. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now this I am saying comes in the context of a much longer conversation. The conversation begins as soon as the crowd finds Jesus. They travel across the Sea of Galilee, and they come to Jesus. Jesus knows their hearts. So this conversation doesn't begin in a positive place. Jesus looks to the crowd and he says, You are following me because you want more bread. You're coming after me because you want more bread, but I have something far better. I have something far better, and you can have it if you believe. Surprisingly, at this point in the story, the crowd says to Jesus, Give us a sign and we will believe. Now I say it's surprising because surely they remember what happened the previous day. Surely they remember the kindergartner's Lunchable. I mean, you remember it, right? I remember it. Surely they remembered it. They saw it. And yet, they're asking Jesus for another sign. Give us a sign, Jesus. Then we'll believe you. What can you perform for us, Jesus? They actually asked that question. How do we know that you are worthy of our belief? Then they give a specific example of the type of thing they want Jesus to do. They mention a story from the Old Testament, a story found in Exodus 16. Long ago, when God rescued his people from, Israel, from, uh, from Egypt, the Israelites traveled through the wilderness, and God provided for the people by sending bread from heaven, raining bread from heaven. The crowd mentions this story as if to say, Jesus, if you can do what Moses did way back then, then we'll believe in you. The crowd knows this Old Testament story, but not as well as they think they do. They get the crucial detail wrong. Jesus sets the record straight. He says to the crowd, it wasn't Moses who provided the bread from heaven. It was my Father who provided the bread. And now he provides a better bread. Now the crowd is interested. With excitement, they say to Jesus, Sir, give us this bread. And that's when Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Now what exactly is the meaning of this metaphor? Let's, let's drill into this. Let's figure it out together. On the one hand, all bread is bread of life, meaning that it sustains life. You have to remember that in Jesus' day, everyone ate bread. And in fact, people often ate only bread. It was the staple of their diet. We know this from the story that happened the previous day. When Jesus sees the crowd coming, what does he say to Philip? Philip, how will we find bread for all of these people? It was the staple of their diet. If you wanted to live, you ate bread. If you didn't eat bread, you died. So on the one hand, all bread is bread of life. What does Jesus mean? The context and these last couple of phrases of verse 35, they bring clarity. What was the problem with the bread that Jesus provided the crowd? What was the problem with the bread that God provided for his people in the wilderness? The problem was, the effects wore off. The effects wore off. Jesus fed the crowd, and the very next day they come seeking him. Why? Because they're hungry again. They're faced with that same dilemma. If I don't eat, I'll die. Jesus says, I am the bread of eternal life. You're looking for bread that will sustain you temporarily. I am the bread that will sustain you eternally. I offer you eternal life. Look at what he says. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. It's not the case that you eat this bread and then the next day you're hungry again. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Don't you see what's happening in this story? The crowd comes to Jesus with a need. It's a universal need. It's an unending cycle of need. If I don't eat the bread, I'll die. Then I'm fed. If I don't eat the bread, I'll die. Jesus is the solution to all of this. He says, I can give you eternal life. Come to me, believe in me, and you will never hunger again. Your soul will be nourished eternally. But of course, bread sitting on a shelf doesn't nourish anyone, does it? And so Jesus says, you must come to me. You must Believe, he says to the crowd. And how do they respond? Look at it at the end of the story. In three different places, we're told how the crowd responds. Verse 41, So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And to that they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? They grumble, they don't believe. Why? Because they know His family. They don't understand, they don't comprehend the Incarnation. The very truth that we celebrate always and especially during the Advent season. The Incarnation means God in the flesh. The enfleshment of God. Jesus, who is fully God, Who was there in the very beginning when all things were made, all things were made through him, this God becomes man. Remaining fully God, he becomes fully man. He enters into his creation to redeem it. This is how Jesus provides eternal life. The crowd refuses to believe that. They say, How can this man be from heaven? How can he give what only God can provide eternal life? It makes no sense. We know his parents. His earthly origin, it's so very plain. And so they don't believe. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, heard this teaching about Jesus being the bread of life, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus' teaching is hard, it's difficult, it's offensive. In verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. Many who were intrigued by Jesus now turn away from him. In the midst of all this, Jesus says something that maybe sounds strange. Here's what he says. It's in verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me "...unless the Father who sent me draws him." Or stated positively, "...those whom the Father draws will come to me," Jesus says. See, he's saying this as a word of encouragement in the midst of the abandonment. He's saying it as a guarantee, even as all of these people reject him and walk away. Jesus is saying, not everyone will believe... But some people will. God will draw people. God will work in hearts, in restless hearts. People will come to see that Jesus is the only one who can provide that for which our hearts long. See, the people in the crowd on that day, many of them had objections. They had problems with Jesus, so they were not yet ready to believe. I wonder maybe if you have objections, problems with Jesus. What are your objections? What should you do with them? Here's my suggestion. I don't want you to take your objections and just cast them to the side, pretend like they don't exist. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring your objections with you for the remainder of this series. We've got six weeks still to go. Bring your objections with you and listen to these passages in the Gospel of John where Jesus shows us and teaches us who He is. Who He is really. And with your objections in hand and the Bible open before you, let's just see what happens. Let's just see. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for this amazing story. Ah, I wish I could have been there that day. To see the crowd for myself. See how you provided. Part of me thinks if I had been there, wow, I really, really, really know you. Maybe I wouldn't have questions anymore, but then we keep reading, and as the story unfolds, even the people who were there, they still had objections. They still had questions. They still had doubts. Lord, here's our prayer. As we begin this series that will take us now all the way through Advent, our prayer is that you would work in our hearts, softening hard hearts. Shining light in the darkness, giving the gift of faith, the ability to believe, piercing our hearts with truth. So many of us are searching for something. Sure, if we're asked how we're doing, we would say good, but on another level, We feel like there's something out there, something beyond us that we need to find the good life. In this series, help us to see, God, that only Jesus, only Jesus can provide that for which our hearts long. Only Jesus.